What's going on, everyone? And welcome into Plazon's podcast, filled to the brim with glitchy analysis and freezing cold takes so cold that they're boiling hot. Before we get into today's episode, we're going to talk about our sponsor for the day. Thank you so much to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Check out their website for both takeout and delivery deals. Right now, they've got a deal. Get a large one-topping pizza for just $7.99. Thank you so much to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. And in today's episode, we are talking AFC, NFC Championship game. What those means and all about my thoughts on those games. We've got our second Q&A. And boy, does this have some banger questions. And last but certainly not least, we are going to lock it in. I'm sick and tired of missing these picks. I swear to you, these are the ones. Plaisance locks returns. All right, well, let's go ahead and break into it. The main topic of today's episode the NFC and AFC Championship game. We're first going to talk about the NFC. Philly dominated a team that ended the game basically without a quarterback. From the jump, Brock Purdy hurt his elbow. He apparently tore his UCL and is out for six months. But after only throwing four passes, was he hurt? And the game from then on out was over. For the first 20 minutes of that game, the 49ers defense showed the hell up and made it look like this game was going to be a battle of field positioning and hard-nosed running games. But in the last five minutes of the first half, the 49ers ended the game for themselves. Jimmy Ward got caught on a crucial defensive pass interference on third and seven, and his teammate Traverius Ward got another later in that drive to continue to give the Eagles life. After giving up a touchdown that drive, Josh Johnson comes in for the 49ers to replace Brock Purdy as quarterback and fumbles the snap, Eagles ball on the 49ers 30. The yellow cloth went flying again three plays later, and it looked like the 49ers were going to hold Philly to a field goal until a crucial face mask on Boston Scott that cost the 49ers 15 yards. Shortly later, Boston Scott grabs the ball again, Runs it in 10-yard for a touchdown. After that, the 49ers came out of the second half with the oxygen completely sucked out of them. And to add to the pain, Josh Johnson gets hurt in that opening drive, and the 49ers literally have no hope after that. I credit the Eagles for winning and capitalizing, but they've yet to be challenged this postseason. On the Fox broadcast, the crew showed a stat that the Eagles led the league in time with the lead the entire season. Now, this can mean two things at the same time. The Eagles are dominant, and the Eagles don't have good experience coming from behind. I love this Philly team, but I worry about them falling behind and having to abandon the reason why they're even in the Super Bowl, which is the run game. Now, moving on to the AFC Championship game, there were two takeaways that I had from this game. One, Patrick Mahomes is top dog, and everyone, including me, are always trying to find excuses to say otherwise. This man threw for 326 yards and two touchdowns on not two, but just one leg. Second, don't hit the quarterback on his way out of bounds. To me, if you saw this play, it's a shame all around. It's a shame that the late hit by the Bengals defensive end, Joseph Osai, will go down in infamy. And it's a shame that he handed the fate of the game into the ref's hands. But what choice did those refs have? It was the correct call, and the Chiefs move on despite Joe Shiesty's drippy 
pregame fit. Bengals will be back 100% though. They just need to protect the quarterback. Steve Spagnola, the Chiefs defensive coordinator, called a near perfect game. Chiefs win with that last second field goal, 23 to 20. Moving on to the Super Bowl, we've got Eagles, Chiefs. Eagles open up as an early favorite. Uh, just like this past game, I think Mahomes is going to have more question marks about his injury. The high ankle sprain, it's grade two, usually takes two to three weeks to recover from. He injured it last week. He should be fully healthy coming into this last game, but he's going up against an Eagles defense that led the league in sacks. This is not the Bengals who only had 30 all season long. The Eagles are going to come from Mahomes. That's what the Bengals should have done, but that's what the Eagles 1,000% will do. I want to see what he looks like under pressure. On offense for the Eagles, they are fully healthy, except for maybe Jalen Hurts. I think that he'll be fully recovered from his shoulder injury from four weeks ago, but we'll just have to wait and see on that. All right, now let's move in to our Q&A. Now, thank you so much to all of our loyal listeners who sent in some questions. I am more than happy to answer them. I'm going to go ahead and take this time to say, if you're listening to us on Spotify or if you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure to hit that follow button or that subscribe button. It's much appreciated and it motivates me to continue to do this podcast. I love each and every one of my listeners. Let's get right into this Q&A. First up, why did the Bills get all the Super Bowl hype in the preseason and not the Bengals who made it to the Super Bowl last year? To me, it's a media and fan issue. Both are always looking for a new narrative to follow or fall in love with. Now, let's think about college football today and the NBA three to four years ago. Both did not get talked about near as much as they should have on sports debate shows. Why? Because it's like beating a dead horse. Everyone knew that those 2017-2018 Warriors with Kevin Durant were going to win the title and every year in college football, it's Alabama or it's Georgia. And no one that's not a fan of those teams wants to hear or talk about it. Now, the Chiefs are a part of that, whether you like it or not. But maybe to a lesser extent. They've been to five straight AFC championships, and no one wants to pick them because it's following the same old narrative. On the other side of boring stories, you have fluke ones. Miracles like St. Peter's run in the tournament or TCU's football season. To me, that's what the Bengals run was last year. Now, they proved me wrong this year by getting back to the AFC Championship, but if you combine all of that with, you know, the Patrick Mahomes Chiefs narrative is too overplayed and the Bengals, like, could they really have that magical a season again? You get somewhere in the middle, and that's the Bills who barely lost against the Chiefs in the playoffs, and they signed a Super Bowl winner, Vaughn Miller. That's your answer. Now, do I think the Bills are going to be that hyped up again this next season? Absolutely not. They have way more questions to answer, and that first question they've got to answer is who in the hell is going to be their running back next year? Because I don't think it's going to be Devin Singletary. Next question. Is Alabama's dynasty strong enough to last after Nick Saban retires, and is it already over after last season? Well, first, I think as long as Nick Saban is there at Alabama, Alabama is in playoff contention, and it will always be in the grasp of every Alabama team going into November. To me, as long as Alabama is competing for SEC titles, maybe not winning them, but just competing, the dynasty is still alive. I start Alabama's dynasty in 2008 when they went 12-0 and lost against Tim Tebow's Florida team in the SEC championship game. 
Now, to answer the first part of that question, I don't think Alabama's dynasty is strong enough to survive Nick Saban's retirement. We've seen some decay over the last couple of seasons, and I think the NIL will play a huge part in continuing that decay. Alabama doesn't have the funds to compete with teams like Texas, Georgia, Miami, nor the desire to, apparently. According to multiple reports, Saban told multiple players, current players, recruits, and transfers to find somewhere else to play after listening to their NIL demands. Apparently, a a player came in and asked for $500,000, and Saban basically just told him to kick rocks. Now, that being said, the most important part of this answer is simply history. And in this case, in almost every single case in human history, history always repeats itself. Now, this is answering whether or not Alabama can survive Saban's retirement. Let's look at some of the other dynasties in the past, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Now, certain teams in sports can't maintain success. Almost every team in sports, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, soccer, whatever, cannot maintain success after a star player or a coach, or maybe even both. The 50s and 60s Celtics stopped their historic title run after Bill Russell retired. The 60s and 70s Alabama teams ran out of steam after Paul Bear Bryant retired in the 80s. Moving on to the 80s, the 80s Lakers and Celtics weren't the same without Magic and Bird. The Bulls weren't the same and weren't even really a playoff contender after Michael Jordan retired. Look at every single team LeBron James has left. Those are not title contenders. Now, Nick Saban is the greatest college coach of all time, which is all the more reason why Alabama is most definitely not the exception to the rule. It would be awe-defying, awe-defying to follow up six national titles in 12 years with even two national titles in the next 10 after Saban is gone. I think that that would play in his favor to being the GOAT, too. If Alabama remains Alabama after he's gone, there will be people who will say, oh, he was just a product of the system and Alabama's always been good and you know Saban just came and piggybacked off that. But Mark my words here and now there is not a single chance Alabama lives up to the Saban legacy immediately after he's gone it's never been done before and it won't be done now you can go ahead and book that now next up this is kind of a lengthy question but this is personally my favorite which NFL free agents will be the most impactful this offseason specifically Tom Brady all right I looked through every single projected free agent for this upcoming year, and I even added in Derek Carr because I don't think the Raiders are going to be able to find a trade for him. I think he's going to get cut. Anyways, here's my top 10 most impactful free agents for 2023. Number 10, Josh Jacobs. He's the lead rusher in the NFL this year. He's the lead rusher in the NFL this year. The Raiders really screwed up by declining his fifth-year option. Now, Jacobs and Devontae Adams were the only bright spots in Vegas. Now, I have him at number 10 because I don't know if running backs are one of the more important positions in this list. So, like I said, number 10. Number 9, Dalton Schultz. Now, Schultz had a down year, but best believe this guy is a top 5 tight end. Just put him in an offense that actually knows how to use a tight end, and he's a slightly lesser version of Travis Kelsey. Number 8. James Bradbury. Now, this is one of my favorite players in the NFL right now. To me, he's the best number two corner on a team in the NFL. 
I think you can get Bradbury at a bargain deal, and he will overperform like he did this year. The second-team All-Pro corner is a Super Bowl-caliber player. He's extremely impactful. That's why I've got him at number eight. Number seven. Now, this is a low-key steal. I don't know if anybody's talking about him being a free agent, but number seven is Dalvin Tomlinson. With the success of Chris Jones and Aaron Donald, someone like Tomlinson can be used as a huge clog in the middle, a disruptor and a double-team factor that Minnesota did not even see this year because they didn't use him correctly. Number six, Orlando Brown Jr. Now, in 2020, Brown was one of the best tackles, but then he moved to Kansas City where he's maintained average play. Now, I think teams see his potential, and that's what he showed off in Baltimore. So I imagine if he signs to a different team this next year, he's going to have a much more successful year. Number five, Deron Payne. Now, this is a better version of Dalvin Tomlinson, more athletic, more pass rush-esque. The duo between Jonathan Allen and Payne in Washington was top five in the NFL in terms of defensive tackle pairings. Now, he can easily replicate that somewhere else with another defensive tackle. I love Deron Payne, and I think that he could absolutely tear something up if he goes to the right team. Number four, Jesse Bates. In my opinion, he is the most underrated free agent this offseason. Pass coverage, zone or man, he's elite, and he's not a bad run defender. I think he could have a Tyron Matthew impact on like the Kansas City Chiefs. I think he can go somewhere and really make a difference. Number three, Tom Brady, the GOAT. The GOAT, greatest of all time, for those who are wondering. The playoffs pained me to watch, but I know he probably still wants to ball. I personally think he should retire, but I'm not out here trying to tell another man what to do with his career. I think in the right offense, Tom Brady can still get to one last Super Bowl. Possibly. He's got to have a lot of weapons. Not the Raiders. Promise you that. Number two, Derek Carr. The Raiders should be punished, punished, imprisoned, for the torture that he has had to go through. He went through Gruden, bad defenses, Antonio Brown. Somebody give this man a competent GM, a competent coach, and quite possibly even a competent team, and he's a top 10 quarterback, maybe even a Super Bowl winning quarterback. But I digress. Number one, and how have people not been talking more about this? I don't know. Lamar Jackson. I would love to have Lamar throw to someone besides Mark Andrews or Mark Andrews or Mark Andrews. This is Mike Vick 2.0 with a dog mentality. Lamar can win Super Bowls for any team that has a wide receiver that can spread the field and give him the ability to run the football. Number one, Lamar Jackson. That's my top 10 NFL free agents this year. Next question up. Why does Trey Young stick around with the Atlanta Hawks? Well, for starters... Well, for starters, they dropped a bag on his head. He signed a five-year, $215 million deal that kicked in this year. He's making 37 mil this year. But outside of that, I'm really not sure why. What was very strange this offseason was the DeJounte Murray to the Hawks trade. I'm really not sure what that was about. Now, it's undetermined whether or not it's going to work. The Hawks, I think, are about 500 right now. But there's only one basketball, and eventually one of them is going to have to defer and they will be let down by that. Not sure when that's going to be. I would not be surprised to see him either demand a trade or demand that Murray be traded. 
there's a lot going down in hot Atlanta this summer if they flop in the playoffs. And that's why I think maybe Trey Young could be on the move this offseason. I don't know. All right, second to last question. If the Eagles don't win a Super Bowl this year, is this season a failure? Now, usually I would not say this about teams because, you know, you can build up to the playoffs like the Chiefs did and you can, you know, work your way into it like the Bengals did. Neither of their seasons are failures if they don't win the Super Bowl. But 1,000% this season is a failure for the Eagles, but not for reasons that you could really think of on the surface. Yeah, any playoffs team's goal is to win a Super Bowl, like I said. And if you don't, like it's a failure. But the Eagles are different because they've caught lightning in a bottle. The A.J. Brown and C.J. Gardner-Johnson trades, plus the Hassan Reddick and James Bradbury signing, elevated the Eagles to a whole new level that won't last for more than this year. There are several, several factors that can potentially close the Eagles Super Bowl window sooner rather than later, which is why it is so important to win now. Here's the Eagles free agents just this offseason. Fletcher Cox, Robert Quinn, Brandon Graham, Javon Hargrave, Jason Kelty, James Bradbury, Ndamukong Sue, Miles Sanders, C.J. Gardner-Johnson. That's so many core players, many of which are the backbone of this team. Now, Jalen Hurts is playing himself into a max deal, so he won't be cheap forever. I don't know if the Eagles can get to the Super Bowl in the next two or three years. Just like the 2018 season, you know, the Eagles didn't really get back to the Super Bowl until now. Now, you have to win at all costs because it might be a while before you can get back. Now, my last question that I've had from a viewer is, what are your thoughts on the two-point overtime rule in college football? Now, for years, everyone has always said the college football did overtime better than the NFL. But here's a pleasant, freezing cold take. So cold that it's boiling hot. I think the NFL does it right now. I like ties in the regular season, and I like the games being played like the first four quarters. Basketball, soccer, and baseball go business as usual in their initial overtimes, and they let the games be played naturally. College football should do the same. With a 10-minute quarter, both teams get the ball. Now, whenever you like have somebody get a stop, then the game's over. The championship and playoffs have a sudden death after 10 minutes. That's a given because you have to have a winner. But during the regular season, I'm all for a tie. I'd love to see some ties. Unless, of course, it's, it's probably for Alabama. Then I'll be upset. All right. Thank you guys so much once again for that Q&A. That is going to do it for that. We are going to get into the best part of the show. Man, oh man, this is hot off the press. I've got the script for tonight, and it's teeming with so many tasty plays. First up, Stephen Curry over 41.5 points and rebounds. It's plus 290. Ladies and gentlemen, Curry is going nuclear tonight. Mark my words, and I'm not sure you're ready for it. He's been on fire the last five games, averaging 33 points per game, and he's trying to make a case for another MVP. Give him the rock. Get out of the way. 41 and a half points and rebounds. Book it. It's over. Speaking of the Warriors, here's a little parlay for you. Warriors minus five and Timberwolves money line. Curry is going to obliterate SGA and show him why he wasn't the all-star starter and give his signature eight-plus three-pointer performance and these young bucks at OKC just aren't ready for this savvy Golden State Warrior vets. Give me the spread and some. On to the Timberwolves. I like Anthony Edwards to go off. He had 34 points against Sacramento on Saturday. He's playing Sacramento again tonight. And guess what? He's going to do it again because the Kings do not have an answer for them. Next up, we've got just another weird play. 
with a player prop. Kyle Kuzma over 36.5 points and rebounds versus the Spurs. That's plus 210. In his last five, Kuzma is averaging 25 and 9, and that's including a fluke game versus the Magic where he had just 10 points and 9 rebounds. This is going to be his bounce back game against the Spurs team that has lost 10 of 11. Book it, Kyle Kuzma over 36.5 points and rebounds. Now, last but not least, a little college basketball lay. Virginia money line versus Syracuse. Simply put, Virginia is a top 10 team and Syracuse is struggling in the ACC. Now, while away conference games can be, you know, dicey, I'm going to roll the dice on the future ACC champs this year and pair that with another top 25 road team. I'm going with Iowa State alternate spread minus four and a half against Texas Tech, who is actually favored in that game. The Red Raiders are horrible against the Big 12, going 0-8 so far this year. They lose conference games by more than 10 points per contest. And combine that with their already 34-point loss against Iowa State earlier this year, I'm slamming the Cyclones minus 4.5. Those two games are a nice plus 289. We'll be seeing you for sure. That is going to do it for this episode of Plizalt's Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Be sure to hit that follow button, that subscribe button, and we'll see you.